Benjamin Franklin famously wrote, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance uh, that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Granted, this statement was not made with any kind of theological reflection, and perhaps it was even intended to be taken as a humorous remark, which is certainly how it tends to get quoted. I've referred to this quote myself, usually with a smile and a chuckle. But isn't it often true that what we joke about reveals something of what we actually believe? With that recognition on the table, I'd like to challenge what this quote indicates as a general truth. When spoken by a Christian, which Franklin certainly wasn't, this quote may actually reveal a serious problem in our theology. In fact, I'd say this quote fits in quite well with Franklin's own non-Christian understanding of God and the world. For the Christian, is death certain? It is not. What is your blessed hope, Christian? It is not to die and go to heaven. Our blessed hope is, as Paul puts it, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or, as the author of Hebrews puts it, we are waiting for Christ, who will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Do you believe that Jesus could return at any moment? If we can joke about the certainty of death, perhaps we don't really believe that. Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews, all the New Testament writers speak of hope that Jesus would return within their lifetimes. And they believed that He certainly could return at any moment. Have we lost sight of Jesus' indications that He will return at a moment we do not expect and cannot predict? Are we obeying His repeated instruction to stay awake and keep alert? Are we ready for His return? Wouldn't you rather be among those who are alive when He comes than have to experience the agony of death? Yes, death is the last enemy to be destroyed, but death's utter destruction is on the calendar. Death has an expiration date, and I, for one, would like to be alive to see it, not having been claimed as one of its victims. Regardless whether we are alive or whether we will have died, we will, of course, all see the demise of death together. We will all, raptured and resurrected all together, sing the taunt song of 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We cannot sing that song with the triumphant joy it calls for today. We cannot sing with that attitude of joy, triumph, until the resurrection. We can sing it today, but we should sing it with tears and with longing. It is a promise yet unfulfilled. So if death is not quite so certain as Benjamin Franklin would have us believe... What of taxes? Yes, governments will require the financial support of their people in the form of taxes of various kinds. However, even the certainty of taxes has many exceptions. Many taxes are quite specific, only drawn from certain people. And in many cases, being exempt from certain taxes is quite a possibility. This is actually the main theme of our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 17. Tax exemption for Jesus' followers. However, we're going to see that this has nothing to do with our obligations of earthly citizenship. It's important to understand what tax is being referred to in this passage, and we'll explore that very carefully. But before we get into Matthew's account, can we redeem Benjamin Franklin's quote? Perhaps so. To do so, we must take Franklin's words entirely out of context. I'm okay doing that with Franklin, but not the Bible. Here's how we could amend Franklin's statement to make it true and to see it actually as a fitting summary of our passage this morning. 
In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except the death of Jesus to pay our taxes. As we approach Matthew 17, 22, we find Jesus and a large group of His followers gathering in Galilee one last time. This group of disciples, which were told later in Matthew's Gospel, specifically included many women. His mother Mary and Mary Magdalene named among them. This group of disciples, large group, not just the twelve, will travel with Jesus to Jerusalem. But first, before they leave Galilee for Jerusalem, Jesus will deliver to them one more block of teaching, which Matthew records in chapter 18. As the group gathers in Galilee, we read about Jesus stressing His disciples out. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised from the dead on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus again, plainly and clearly, informs His disciples what is about to happen to Him. Here, Jesus adds an important phrase that He did not use before. He will be delivered into the hands of men. The word translated delivered will be translated as betrayed in several passages, referring to Judas's actions specifically. However, here, saying that he will be delivered into the hands of men, into the hands of people, suggests that this passive voice, delivered, should be understood as a reference to God, as the one who delivers Jesus into the hands of people, including Judas. There are many Old Testament references to God delivering someone into the hands of someone else. In Exodus 23, 31, He promises to deliver the Canaanites into the hands of the Israelites. Several times in Joshua, we read of God delivering a group of Canaanites into Joshua's hands. In Leviticus 26, 25, He promises to deliver the covenant-breaking Israelites into the hands of their enemies. And in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the Lord repeatedly indicates that He is delivering the Jews into the hands of the Babylonians. This is the language of God's judgment. Thus here, Jesus is saying that God is going to hand over Jesus to be judged with the judgment that people deserve. Such gospel sweetness is here in this phrase. That God would hand over the Messiah should have been a familiar and biblical idea for the disciples. This Greek word was likely used here to echo its use in the Greek translation of Isaiah 53, 6, speaking of the suffering servant who is Jesus. What we see in our English translations of Isaiah 53 is reflecting the Hebrew, and the key line says there, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Greek could be translated into English as, and the Lord handed him over for our sins. Jesus' disciples should have heard the gospel of the kingdom in Jesus' words. They should have heard that Jesus was saying he was going to be judged condemned, executed in the place of sinners as the suffering servant. And he was going to rise from the dead, as Isaiah 53 goes on to depict as well. But instead, Matthew tells us that Jesus stressed them out by this saying. They were greatly distressed, is how the ESV puts it. And Luke's account says that they did not understand. But then Luke provides a theological explanation for why they didn't understand. Look at Luke 9.45 on the screen. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. Who concealed it from the disciples? The same one who famously would later keep the two disciples on the road of Emmaus from recognizing the resurrected Jesus, God the Father. As Jesus had earlier said in His public prayer of thanksgiving to the Father, God is the one who both reveals and conceals. 
And for this moment at least, God has His own good and right purposes for concealing the truth from these disciples, even as Jesus tells them the plain truth about what is about to happen. Their distress, their grief in response to Jesus' saying indicates their lack of understanding. If they had understood that Jesus was going to die for their sins and that Jesus was going to rise from the dead victoriously, they would have rejoiced at this news. Jesus will even say this plainly the night before His crucifixion. Perhaps you remember the conversation, the last conversation Jesus has with His disciples, just the 11, right before, the night before the crucifixion. In John 14, 28, we read these words, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus even calls into question their love for Him. We would have thought it was because they loved Him so much that they were so distressed. Then Jesus adds in John 14, 29, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So they do not understand Jesus, they do not love Jesus, and they do not yet believe in Jesus. But He tells them now, so that... After he dies on the cross, as he said, after he rises from the dead, as he said, then and only then will they believe in him truly. Now, as we move into the final paragraph of Matthew 17, we should acknowledge up front the oddity of this story. In some ways, it's a humorous sequel to the serious pronouncement Jesus just made but we need to read this story about paying taxes in light of Jesus' announcement of His death. In verse 24, we get another geographical notice. Let's not pass over it. Capernaum is an important city of Galilee in Jesus' life and ministry. One writer observes the significance of Matthew's mention of Capernaum here like this. Jesus now arrived in Capernaum for the last time in Matthew's Gospel. This was the town to which he moved at the beginning of his ministry in order to be near the Gentiles. As Jesus launched his ministry from here, Capernaum became the place in which a great light was switched on. According to Isaiah's prophecy, this was a light that would eventually shine out into the Gentile territories to shine on all those who lived under the shadow of death. We read about that back in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus set His face towards the day of His death here, the mention of Capernaum was a reminder of the light soon to shine on all those under the shadow of death, especially the Gentiles. Let's consider verse 24 in the first part of verse 25. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. Now it's important to explore what the two drachma tax is. It's commonly referred to as the temple tax. Let's make sure we understand the significance of this. First, consider the amount. Two drachma was equivalent to a half shekel. Essentially, this was minimum wage for two days' work. So as far as taxes go, this was not a heavy burden. Second, consider who was taxed. It was only collected from male Jews, 20 years old and older. Third, consider the timing of the collection. The tax was due on the first day of the month in which Passover falls the Jewish month of Nizan. The money changers, you might remember them, the money changers set up their tables at the temple five days before the tax was due for those who would like to pay the tax when they arrive in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. But about one month before Passover, local tax collectors were appointed and commissioned to go door-to-door among Jewish homes even outside the land of Israel, 
to see if anyone would like to pay their tax before they travel to Jerusalem. Thus, here in Matthew 17, these tax collectors are going to homes in Capernaum asking if people are ready to pay the temple tax. So, we can solidly establish this event happening less than a month before Jesus' death. Finally, consider where the tax went and what it supported. The money was collected once a year to be used to fund the work of the priests in the temple. Thus, the money would pay for utensil replacement, animals for sacrifices, clothing for priests, and that sort of thing. So this was not a Roman tax. The tax collectors here are not like Matthew. They're not viewed as traitors to the Jews. In fact, these tax collectors are viewed as Jewish patriots working directly for the high priest. In all of the Roman Empire at this time in history, only the Jews were allowed to collect a tax for the upkeep of their own temple. There's more to be said on this point, but don't miss two things. This tax pays for animal, animal sacrifices, such as the animals that are slaughtered on the Day of Atonement for all the Jewish people. Secondly, as the Jewish historian Josephus puts it, this tax was understood to be paid to God. We need to address a larger question to understand the full significance of what's happening here. Where did this tax come from? It is rooted in the Mosaic Law, but only loosely so. In the midst of the instructions for building the tabernacle in the wilderness, we find legislation regarding census-taking. Let's explore that for just a few minutes. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16. Yahweh said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Yahweh when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give Yahweh's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give Yahweh's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before Yahweh so as to make atonement for your lives. Atonement money. That sounds a bit like indulgences in the Catholic system, doesn't it? In fact, this text from Exodus was often debated when Protestants protested the Catholic practice of accepting money as a way of reducing people's time in the fictional land of purgatory. What this law actually means is very important, however, and it in no way supports the Catholic false teaching and practice here. First, notice that this law doesn't indicate that this money was to be collected annually. It is connected to the taking of a census. It's unclear to me whether this is referring to a particular census perhaps the very first census that Israel would take, or whether this money is to be collected any time a census is taken. Usually, censuses were taken in preparation for war, which may be indicated here by only counting men 20 years old and older. They'd be the ones eligible to fight in Israel's army. Second, Notice that the law implies that taking a census for Israel is a bad and dangerous thing to do. Each person counted, all the Israelite males 20 years and older must pay their half shekel of silver so that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Why would God send a plague of judgment against Israel when they conducted a census? The law doesn't explain this. Interestingly, in most ancient cultures, censuses were viewed as inherently dangerous. 
looking at the larger biblical context, I think we're on the right track when we see the possibility of trusting in numbers, trusting in the size of your military force, rather than trusting in the Lord as the inherent danger. But the law doesn't spell this out. Third, notice that paying this money doesn't merely protect the individual who paid from a plague from God. Everyone must pay so that the whole nation doesn't suffer a plague of judgment from the Lord. Fourth, notice that there are no tax brackets here. Every man pays equally. As one writer says, the ability to pay more did not make a person more valuable in God's sight, nor did poverty make him less valuable. One life is one life. Fifth, notice that it is for the service of the tent of meeting. Maybe you will remember that when the tabernacle was built, there was a call for voluntary offerings from the people and voluntary uh, materials to be given from the people of Israel for the initial construction of the tabernacle. This required, this required payment, or this tax, might be added to that, or these funds might be used for the ongoing support of the work of the priests. Since censuses don't seem to occur with regularity in Israel, they're not once a year or once a decade, as in our system, it's hard to see how this payment was going to be a regular source of revenue or support for the priests. Moreover, it seems likely that a census was taken of the people prior to the one we read about in Numbers chapter 1. Exodus 38, verses 25 and 26 says, The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, that is, half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men, which is the same number we read as the total in Numbers chapter 1. We do read about kings collecting money from the people in connection with censuses on a couple of occasions in the history of Israel. But we see an annual obligation. That's what we're looking for, an annual obligation laid on the people after the rebuilding of the temple under Nehemiah's leadership. But the amount changes. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. We also, this is Nehemiah speaking, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. It's possible the reason for the reduction in the amount from a half shekel down to a third of a shekel was an accommodation to the poverty of the people after their return from exile. But nevertheless, here we see the annual obligation of money to be given for the support of the work of the temple. Finally, we must explore the connection between this monetary payment and atonement. At a basic level, this monetary payment is connected with the process of making atonement by providing funding for the process to work. Animals cost money. Utensils used in the sacrifices cost money. The priest's clothing costs money. Furthermore, the verse right before this law, in Exodus 30, verse 10, speaks of the Day of Atonement. Exodus 30, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on the horns of the altar once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it, the altar, once in the year throughout your generations, it is most holy to Yahweh. As the full details of the Day of Atonement rituals are laid out in Leviticus 16, we learn there that the sacrifices provide cleansing for the tabernacle because the people's sin throughout the year has defiled the tabernacle. Because God has chosen to dwell among sinful people in the tabernacle... It's like 
their sin splashes mud on God. The offerings of the Day of Atonement provide a once-a-year cleansing for the tabernacle. But, of course, the sacrifices also provide cleansing and forgiveness for the people. The English word atonement refers to the results of these sacrifices. There is reconciliation at one minute. Reconciliation and harmony between God and His people as a result of these sacrifices. But it's in Leviticus 17.11 that we learn why the sacrifices work. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God chose to accept the death of animals in the place of the death of sinful humans. Note the grace of God here. He says, I have given it for you. Yahweh gave a gift to the people of Israel totally by His grace. He freely chose to accept the death of animals instead of the death of sinful humans. The phrase the ESV translates to make atonement for your souls reflects the exact same Hebrew phrase repeated in Exodus 30, verses 15 and 16, where it's translated to make atonement for your lives. Same thing. The idea of atonement is a rich and deep concept that has several different components. Let me offer you a paraphrase of the key part of Leviticus 17.11 that seeks to bring out the most important elements more clearly. I have given the blood of animals to you as a sacrifice that effects purification and that Yahweh accepts in exchange for your lives, which are forfeit in His holy presence due to your uncleanness and sin. That's what it means to make atonement. And that's what it costs to make atonement. The exchange of animal blood for human blood is a kind of payment. Indeed, the word ransom is related to the Hebrew word translated make atonement. So, even in the case of animal sacrifice, the dead animals are viewed as currency, as the price paid to set the sinner free to continue living in relationship with God, clean and forgiven. But, in Exodus 30, verses 11 to 16, in connection with the taking of a census, the payment of money itself actually brings about atonement. It's one thing to think of blood as a metaphorical payment that results in cleansing and forgiveness. But it's quite different to accept the idea of literally paying God off, giving actual money, and expecting the result of cleansing and forgiveness. So how are we to understand this? Well, it may be significant to recognize that the Day of Atonement sacrifices and really every Old Testament sacrifice, is retrospective. Day of Atonement sacrifices essentially wipe the slate clean for the people of Israel with regard to the sins they committed the previous year. The atonement money is different in that it could be viewed as prospective atonement. As one commentator puts it, it seeks to forestall the incurring of guilt. If the census in view is for military service and warfare, the problem seeking to be addressed ahead of time might be the inevitable contamination of Israel through shedding blood on the battlefield. While the soldiers would not be guilty of breaking the commandment, you shall not murder, taking a life in any way remains serious and problematic given the justice of God and the value of human life. After all, a principle that predates the Mosaic law is articulated in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
According to Exodus 30, 11 to 16, the payment of this atonement money prevented a plague of judgment coming from the Lord against the people. It was prospective atonement. Perhaps this is the rationale for the plague that God famously sends against the people of Israel in judgment against David for taking his infamous census. The text never says that he sought to collect this tax. But in any case, it seems like the people of Israel took this law and extended its application beyond the taking of censuses and the preparation of the army for war. In Nehemiah's day, they certainly weren't mustering the army when he called for a tax to be paid for the support of the new temple. The payment of the money ensures that the temple will continue functioning. Remember, you're thinking about the Jerusalem temple. The temple is the place on the planet where people could meet with God personally. The temple is the one place on the planet where God provides sacrificial atonement for the sins of His people. Now, why do we need to know all of that before we can properly understand Matthew 24, Matthew 17, 24 to 27? The question the tax collector asks in verse 24 takes on a much deeper significance, way deeper than the tax collector understood, and way deeper probably than Peter understood in the moment. The tax collector assumes that Jesus does pay the tax. And I suppose up to this point in his life, since his 20th birthday, Jesus probably did pay this tax. However, there were certain kinds of folks who claimed exemptions from this temple tax, namely the priests. Beyond that, this tax, like most taxes, I suppose, became debated and contested and frustrated the people. And so there were lots of people trying to claim exemptions for all kinds of reasons. But some Jews seem to have recognized the corruption that was going on among the priests in Jesus' day. And so, not wanting to contribute to the corruption, they refused to pay the tax. Some rabbis thought that there might be an exemption, that an exemption might be appropriate for beggars and those who lived on charity. And some rabbis themselves claimed exemptions because they were rabbis. Jesus might have claimed exemption on, all, on any of those bases, but he didn't. Peter assumes that Jesus pays the tax and tells the tax collector so. Or perhaps Peter had even seen Jesus pay the tax in previous years. But we're, fi- we're about to find out that Jesus really does claim an exemption, but not for any of the other reasons that people were considering. And Jesus doesn't explain this to the tax collector. This is information for Peter and for us. This is, in, this is the point. Jesus claims to be a son of the king who has called for this tax to be paid. And he implies that Peter and others may join him in his sonship and so claim exemption from paying this temple tax. Jesus refers to the son's freedom in verses 25 and 26. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Well, then the sons are free. Jesus anticipated Peter's concern when Peter walked in the house. Jesus either knew supernaturally what Peter was thinking, or he may have heard the conversation through an open window. Either way, Jesus starts the conversation, providing an interesting lesson for Peter. Jesus gives Peter a multiple choice question in the form of a parable or analogy. He asks Peter to think about earthly kings. Whom do they tax? The citizens of their kingdom? or their own sons. The royal sons are tax-exempt, since their wealth is the wealth of the king anyway. Peter rightly understands this. Jesus then presses the point home, saying that the royal sons are free, exempt from paying taxes. What's the point? The temple tax is understood to be a tax owed to God. Therefore, God's sons should be exempt. 
Jesus uses the plural here to indicate that Peter and all followers of Jesus should recognize their sonship and tax exemption as well. Since the temple is considered to be God's house, it doesn't make sense for God's sons to be expected to pay for the upkeep and functioning of the temple. But, of course, there's more to it than just that, at least for Jesus. There is terrible irony here. Jesus is already claimed publicly to be greater than the temple. As commentator Doriani phrases the question, why should he pay for the symbol when he himself is the reality to which it points? Jesus is the place where God dwells bodily. Everything the temple meant to the Jews is embodied in Jesus. The animal sacrifices that were offered at the temple all pointed toward the final self-sacrifice of the Son of God, which He was about to offer outside Jerusalem in a manner of weeks. If this temple tax was atonement money, the ransom for each man's life in Israel, we will soon read Jesus say in Matthew 20, 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus, in His death on the cross, will fulfill the Day of Atonement sacrifices. Those animal sacrifices provided payment for all the sins the Jewish people committed the previous year. Jesus will die to provide payment for all the sins His people committed prior to their knowing Him. But Jesus, in His death on the cross, will also fulfill the atonement money the people paid as a prospective atonement, protecting them from God's wrath that would be poured out upon them because of their taking of a census. Jesus' death paid the penalty for all the sins all of His people will ever commit in the future. Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath against all who will trust in Him forever. Jesus had the right to refuse to pay the temple tax. In one sense, even sidestepping the theological reasons we've just mentioned, Jesus could have said, you know, I'm going to die in just a few weeks. Who cares if I pay this tax? But the primary point Jesus wants to make for Peter is that the sons of the divine king are exempt from paying this tax. But Jesus had contrasted the sons with others who should rightfully pay the tax. They still have a debt to God. In the analogy, these others would be the Jewish people who won't believe in Him. They are not free because they are rejecting the true Son of God. But think about Peter for just a moment. Think about how encouraging this word would have been to him personally. Jesus is implying that Peter belongs with him as a son. It wasn't too long ago that Jesus referred to Peter as Satan. Peter had been setting his mind on the things of earth, the things of man, depending on merely human reasoning, not listening well to Jesus. And Jesus said that was an indicator that he was on the side of Satan. You know, I don't always set my mind on the things of God. I can depend on human reasoning quite effectively. This passage, among others, reminds me that God doesn't disown His sons. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, our sometimes satanic behavior is covered by our sonship. Do you see what Jesus has done here? He has completely sidelined the temple. And he has also shown that the Jewish people have no claim to being true sons of God unless they believe in him. Unbelieving Jews are not part of the royal family. But his followers are the true family of God. And people can be true sons of God whether they are Jews or not. And all who trust in Jesus are free sons. And they're free from the Mosaic law. As Paul would later put it to the church in Rome, you are not under law, but under grace. As John Piper summarizes the point here, the true children of God, the followers of Jesus, are free because 
Jesus is taking the place of the temple. The sons are free because the sons are discovering that the age of the temple in Jerusalem is over. The age of coming to God through Jesus is here. But even though the sons are free, exempt from the obligation of paying this tax, Jesus now encourages Peter to pay the tax anyway, but with divinely provided funds. Let's look at the strangest miracle in the Gospels, Jesus' tax-paying miracle in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Free from obligation, yes, but the other side of freedom for the Christian is the freedom to love and serve. Jesus will pay the temple tax one last time before he offers his own life as the ransom for sinners that would make the Jerusalem temple and all animal sacrifices completely obsolete. The strangeness of this miracle is often observed. It is strange, partially because the miracle itself is not actually recorded. Peter's told to go fish to find a coin to pay the tax, and we readers are left to assume that he actually did it, and it worked. (laughs) But this miracle also seems odd because it seems rather trivial. Some have even used the word whimsical to describe it, and it also seems rather self-serving. But notice the motivation that Jesus actually states, not to give offense to them. Or we could translate it, so as not to cause them to stumble, or not to put a stumbling block in front of them. This word will become very important in chapter 18, as Jesus will teach the disciples about how to treat one another in the church, issuing some strong warnings about the dangers of tripping each other up causing each other to stumble or sin. But here, the them who might be offended or tripped up appear to be the Jewish tax collectors. Going back to the particular tax collector who began the whole story, he had asked whether Jesus paid the temple tax. And the way he worded the question indicates that he assumed that Jesus did pay it. This means that the tax collector was not an opponent of Jesus coming to try to trap him or trip him up like the Pharisees so often do. So Jesus seems to view this tax collector and others like him, servants of the high priest who probably genuinely seek to serve the Lord of the temple in Jerusalem, as possible recipients of the gospel. Thus, if Jesus refused to pay this tax, even though he is truly exempt for the highest, truest, most excellent and valid reasons it might throw an obstacle up that would hinder this tax collector and others like him from believing the gospel message. Jesus doesn't shy away from offending people. Back in Matthew 15, when he called the Pharisees hypocrites, that his disciples questioned him, indicating that the Pharisees were offended by Jesus' words, using the same word that Jesus uses here. There, Jesus didn't back off. In fact, he doubled down referring to the Pharisees as blind guides who just be ignored, who should just be ignored because they're going to fall into a pit and go to destruction. How offensive! Yet, here, Jesus is unwilling to offend these tax collectors by claiming his own rights. Instead, he indicates that even though the sons are truly exempt from paying the tax, it would be better for them to not take advantage of their freedom in this case so as not to unnecessarily put an obstacle in the way of an unbelieving Jew from believing the message of the gospel. But the way he pays his and Peter's taxes is remarkable. It's not really a miracle he performs per se. Recall the point here. The tax-exempt status of Jesus and his followers is based on the fact that they are true sons of God. Thus, the catching of this fish is an example of the father providing his children the money to pay the tax. Jesus would pay the half shekel to drachma ransom, even though 
there was no need for his life to be ransomed. As commentator Peter Bolt rightly observes, Jesus was never in danger from his father's wrath sending a judgment plague against him, at least not for his own sins. Consider the miraculous catch for just a moment. Commentator Dan Doriani writes, One found a fish with a four-drachma coin in its mouth about as often as one finds a fish with a wad of $100 bills in its mouth. And I love how John Piper fleshes out God's providence for this particular event. He writes, Someone, with a capital S, someone had to be sure that a shekel precisely worth four drachmas, two for Jesus, two for Peter, was dropped in the sea. Someone had to be sure that the fish scooped it up, but did not swallow it all the way. Someone had to be sure that the fish that scooped up the coin would be near where Peter drops his hook in the water. And someone would have to be sure that the fish bites Peter's hook without swallowing the coin and stays hooked till he gets the coin. When Jesus says that this is, in fact, all going to happen, just as he says, he shows himself to be what Peter confessed him to be, the Son of God, worthy of worship and trust. So, we see in this miracle both the promise of provision from our Heavenly Father, validating our sonship, and also we see the validation of Jesus' own divine sonship, showing Himself to be the proper fulfillment and replacement of the temple in Jerusalem. The miracle wasn't on display for the tax collector. All the tax collector was going to see was Jesus and Peter paying the tax without questioning where they got the money. I'd like to close drawing out the lesson here about the nature of Christian freedom. Christian freedom. Freedom in Christ is the only true freedom worth worth talking about. It is not the unrestrained ability to do whatever we want to do. Rather, Christian freedom is the freedom to sacrifice ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Paying the tax was an act of love for the tax collectors. It was to reflect Jesus' own laying down of His divine prerogatives, what Paul would later call in Philippians 2, emptying Himself, refusing to use His genuine equality with God for His own advantage or to protect Himself from suffering. Or, as Peter himself would later write in 1 Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, slaves of God. Just as a matter of clarification, since we did begin the morning with a quote from Benjamin Franklin, the freedom we're talking about here has nothing to do with political independence, a bill of rights, or even certain unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. That's not what we're talking about here. That freedom has certainly been used as a cover-up for evil in so many ways, even by many professing Christians. No, the freedom we're talking about here is only possible because our tax debt of sin has been paid in full. Those who trust in Jesus are set free from the debt of guilt due because of our sin. God has graciously, freely provided the payment. Even more wonderfully than providing a coin in a fish that could cover two men's tax debt for the year, God has forgiven us for all of our sins, past, present, and future. How could He do that? Paul explains it this way in what is surely my favorite verse in the Bible, Colossians 2.14. By canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But as good a news as that is, there's more, much more better news. Not only is our guilt before God erased, we are actually set free from the enslaving power of sin itself. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. What does that mean? Christian, you are free not to sin. When faced with temptation, it is no longer a guaranteed outcome that you will in fact sin in that moment. God will produce the fruit of holiness in your life. Slowly, perhaps, but surely. And you will freely run across the finish line with nothing in your hands to offer to the judge that he might reward you for your efforts. No fish-smelling coin and no righteousness of your own. No, the only thing you will bring across the finish line is the plea, Jesus paid my ransom. Jesus set me free. Jesus died for me. Would you pray with me? Father, you've given us a marvelous picture in a bizarre miracle of the ways that you have provided for us so much more richly. Reminded of that phrase. Thank you for loving us while we were yet sinners. Thank you that you're...